Welcome to the Billings PD Unfiltered Podcast. This is episode 14, and today we're going to be talking about treatment courts. Uh, I'm Lieutenant Brandon Woolley with the Billings Police Department, and I have two guests today. Uh, one is going to be Laura Neal and Carlisle Duke. Ladies, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Let's start off with some introductions because you two are what I consider to be subject matter experts with treatment court. Um, so Laura, let's start with you. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you do, who you are, and what your role is. Yeah, I mean, thanks for saying I'm an expert. Uh, I've only been with the treatment courts for about four years. Uh, but since then, I mean, I've started at the case management position where we do a lot of that holistic approach, looking at housing, looking at transportation to make sure that they're not having any distractions to focus on their treatment. Uh, since then, I've kind of moved up to be a little bit more of that program manager role, evaluating our courts a little bit more, making sure our program is addressing um, some of our policies, some of our procedures. So I've been doing that for, I'd say, about a year and a half now, uh, working a little bit more closely with CAR. Um, so I would say that our side is um, a little bit more close into the city, where we do a little bit more of some of that intake and monitoring uh, while the participants are in treatment. And you you work for the city, is that right? Tech, technically I do. Uh, my position is grant funded, but yes, I am a city employee. And then you reached out to me, this was your idea to do a podcast on this. Um, why, why did you wanna do that? I think in the past year and a half, two years with the pandemic, we've seen that increase in crime we've seen that increase in mental health crisis and treatment courts do a really great job they're evidence-based of being able to offer interventions offer options and sometimes people don't know what it is you know and i think it's really great to come out here and talk about the the great things that we do um the impact that we have on the community and that if there is someone out there who's listening to this they know of a different option uh, that could potentially help. Carla, how about you? Uh, I am the director of court services through the Rimrock Foundation. Um, I oversee our treatment courts um, treatment aspect and our relationships with our treatment courts on what we are doing for serving the clients. So I oversee our program implementation of evidence-based practices, um, ASM criteria being met, and treatment plans and implementation of change happening with clients who are suffering from substance abuse problems, mental health issues. So we're going to get into at depth, like, what does all this mean? Because I think when, when I, you know, read the newspaper or I see articles and we see treatment court or stuff like that, we don't get into the weeds of the interplay in the community and how it actually works in those roles. So I think that's where we're, that's where we're going to head today, hopefully. Yeah, I think that's a really great place to start. I mean, the whole conversation started is I used to tell people what I did and I'd go to dinner parties. I was super excited and I'd be like, I work for treatment courts, crickets, yep. because people don't know what it is. They don't even know the questions to ask. So oh, my husband had to point it out to me and he's like, so for people who don't know, what does that mean? And I, I think that's just where we need to start of really what they are. Correct. Let's do it. Okay. Awesome. So plain and simple, treatment courts are an alternative to jail. 
the people that are in, coming into our courts are ones that are already involved in the justice system. So they have a case that's going through the process. Um, it's active. It's pending. And then once they, you know, get into those options of what it looks like, we can bring up treatment courts. So we get referrals from a lot of different places. You know, we get them from probation and parole. We get them from the public defender's office. The judges can refer them. Um, so we work a lot with the different agencies in our community to have them brought into our court. And what we specifically look for is a substance use part of it and then the mental health part of it. So um, specifically uh, for the city court, we have three treatment courts. We have a DUI court, a drug court, and then a co-occurring court. So the DUI court is specifically for those with the DUI offense. Um, I would say though, we don't look at people with a first offense DUI. Uh, and I think Carr can speak on that. We just don't see that substance use um, need with that first offense. Potentially. Um, a lot of people don't have the know-how of why it's a problem if they haven't seen more than a first offense. Some people can and seek treatment on their own or through the ACT program um, where it's the assertive communi community treatment. Um, this program is specific for the state of Montana to complete when a DUI offense occurs. So that's first through any offense. Um, at this point, a client gets a evaluation where if the honesty happens, we can see a potential problem coming. And if they want to seek treatment at that time, we can intervene too. Um, usually clients don't come into a treatment court through a first offense. Um, it could happen with circumstances that could potentially yeah, have and them it, referred. It does. I mean, we I have seen like a first aggravated DUI come into our court, um, and that just speaks to a little bit more of the legal side of it. Uh, treatment courts are about a year to a year and a half, maybe two, depending on um, maybe a, some some struggles in the beginning. So we look really at the jurisdiction part of that. And when I say jurisdiction, I mean how long your sentence could be. So a DUI first in the legal system is six months. That's not enough time to get treatment for a severe substance use disorder. So that's where we kind of deny those first DUIs. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but a large portion of some of the goals of these treatment programs, not only is it jail diversion, uh, but then obviously there's that preventative side of it for community recidivism of, of crimes. And that would kind of fall in, in line with the first offense type situation, correct? Yes, especially if uh, first offense, second offense happens very closely. That's usually where we see a second offense being referred for a treatment court or unsuccessful completion of probation in their six months if they continue to use. There might be an underlying problem that they're not aware that they have, and it might not come up until that time. So I guess this would be a good time for me to ask, like, how, how does one meet the criteria or is selected for how does one get into a treatment court program? So we have to get a referral from some sort of agency, like I said before, judges, pr probation officers, public defenders, private attorneys. Uh, we've had people refer themselves that are maybe a little familiar with the program. Um, so we get that referral. We look at what the charges are and if they qualify. Um, and what we look for is that jurisdiction, that length of sentence, 
Um, we look at what's behind the offense. You know, for our drug court, we see PFMAs, we see thefts, those kind of charges, and then our co-occurring court encompasses almost any charges, as long as there's that mental health aspect to it. So right away, we do a little bit of digging, a little bit of police work. Uh, we look at the charging documents, um, and we see that length of time, and then if there's anything that doesn't qualify them. So because we're grant-funded, we cannot take si- uh, silent sex or violent offenders. Uh, it's not allowed through our grant. So right away, uh, those don't qualify. We also try really hard to make sure that any sort of referral has everybody on board. Um, Because of the co-occurring court, we're the only one in this region. We do work with the other treatment courts across the street that they might say, hey, they're probably a little bit more appropriate for you. We're seeing some more mental health. Um, So we always have to check with prosecutors, other defense attorneys, probation and parole. because it is still, uh, it's still like a community program. It's still a teamwork. That's what makes treatment courts amazing is it's all these different agencies and parts working together to help the individual. So right away, we have to check all of those boxes. And then we go into a little bit more of the nitty gritty. Uh, they have to come in and do a screening with our coordinator. Uh, and at that point, we'll do a rant. Uh, it's a risk and needs assessment. And because of our grant as well, we look for those high risk, high need individuals. And that's huge in the community as well. You know, those are the ones that are out there create, committing crimes consistently. Those are the ones that maybe don't have that stabilization piece. Uh, so we need to see that high risk, high need assessment. And that also helps to make sure that we're not being biased about things, you know, that we're, we're not saying, oh, you know, we don't want you because we don't like you. You know, we, have, we need to have that evidence base behind it why we're not accepting people. Uh, so pending that they have that assessment completed, we set them up for a chemical dependency evaluation and a mental health evaluation if they're uh, referred for a co-occurring court. Uh, and Rimrock has been amazing. They set aside four, five slots a week. Uh, it can go up to as many as needed. Um, we usually have four slots available, um, which are counselors or LACs, licensed addiction counselors, have in place in order to have specifically for an assessment of a client being referred over for uh, treatment. So So we know that those with substance abuse and even co-occurring mental health issues, uh, very difficult for them to come around to accept help to, to get it. What are, what are the incentives, not only individually for them, but for the community for programs like this? I mean, I think the big thing is that we're doing that intervention. We're saying we understand this is a a problem. We're trying to make sure that the next time they get in a car and drive, they're not under the influence. They're not going to, you know, hurt somebody. Uh, they're not going to steal anything because they're under quite a bit of supervision. And we're all um, watching them and making sure that they're being okay. Uh, we also work on some more of that holistic approaches as well. So when they're in our program, we're trying to stop the cycle, essentially. So we also make sure that we're assessing if they're a parent. Do we need to get them in parenting classes? If, you know, for a PFMA, you have to take an anger management course. But even if we see a charge that 
has some sort of anger behind it, we do an anger management course. We do, um, it's called Timeout for Time Out for Me, which is a human sexuality course and also assists with um, codependency, healthy relationships, communication, um, those interactive relationships with family, significant others, children, how do they speak to them, how do they um, make sure that they're building a healthy relationship because it's not just a one-person disease, it's a family disease. So this affects the significant other, this affects the parents of the individual coming into treatment and the children. So the cycle of addiction needs to stop, the cycle of anger needs to stop, and um, hopefully we give them the skills in order to implement that into their lives and bring their family engaged in that as well. So we've got community benefits is what I heard, and there's also individual benefits. Uh, These people that qualify for it potentially gain improvement of quality of life and family structure, everything. Uh, also, can you speak to the the component a little bit that the incentive is? There's a little bit of leverage there, uh, with um, you know, in exchange for time in jail or incarceration. Yeah, and before we your jail comment made me bring this up as well for a community benefit is because they're not in jail, we're not spending the money on jail either. Um, so when I had uh, reached out to Yellowstone County facility detention facility, they told me it's probably about a hundred days. $100 a day per person. Treatment core on average, depending if they have insurance or uh, the grant is paying for it, $12 a day. Um, so nothing is coming out of the community's pocket for their treatment costs, for them being in our program uh, specifically. So that's a huge benefit And as well. the reinvestment of the client into the community too. They're, they're doing a job, right? They have to work when they're in the treatment court. They are paying taxes. They're being a productive member of society. Their, their engagement with their children, there's not so much, um, if they're incarcerated, they're not taking care of their children. Foster care, um, a single parent having to take care of their kids and need increased um, support through the state can happen as well. So there's a lot of different ways in which that can assist our community. So let's say I qualify. What's it look like? once you get into the program? So I think the first thing that uh, Laura and her team does is they make sure that you understand what you're getting into, right? This is an investment into yourself. This is also a period of time in which it's looking like a year to potentially two years, depending on your progress. Um, A lot of times we hear, I'll be done in that year. I'm gonna be done in that year. Usually you can understand that you might comply and get done in a year. That's not gonna, that potentially may not provide that recovery capital for long-term change. So the time and the investment and the client being ready as soon as they come in is where Laura gets to, Laura and her team gets to see kind of that first component of like, they seem really just, I wanna get through the program or they're super ready and they're really engaged in what they need in their life and they really understand where they're at. Um, so kind of the baseline of what you're getting into, what the expectations are. So you need to attend treatment, you need to attend court, you need to comply with uh, probation, you need to provide UAs, and um, you need to meet with your case manager and coordinator in order to make sure that we're providing all the care that you need and also having any referrals as well. 
Yeah, so right away, uh, we do. We have a, a nice sheet that says, hey, here are all the things that you need to do. Um, and that's after we sentence you into treatment court. And I think I want to touch a little bit um, on some of that incentives for the individuals as well. Because like Car said, we see a lot of people that are like, I'm going to be done in a year. It doesn't matter. Uh, or we see the people that are really ready. Uh, so we try to speak a little bit to those people that are hesitant. But we see, because you can see when we do our assessments, they need it. You can see the areas that they need help on. So we try our best to make treatment courts as appealing as possible. And our prosecutor, Chantel, is amazing. She works uh, behind the scenes, getting the contracts ready, trying to find little ways. Um, so even to just bring people in, we look at a deferred prosecution. And that just means um, that you don't have to enter into the justice system. Like, we stop it before you even have that on, like, your criminal record. So that way, when you complete our program, it's gone. You get, like, this nice, fresh, healthy start. And then we have um, just a deferred program. So we will defer your sentence uh, for a year or until your completion. And then it's sealed. And that comes off your record as well. And then we just have a straight traditional sentence of... Here's your year. There we go. And we have to do that for DUIs because they're stacking offenses, which means when you get one, then you get the second, then you get the third. And that's just for a safety reason. You know, we don't want to have people who have had six, eight DUIs, but then all of a sudden they're only in my court for their second. Uh, so we try to provide those incentives as well. And then we also look at different incentives too. Can we take money off their fines? That's huge. I mean, a DUI could be up to $3,500 and to look at a client and be like you even just make it to the middle of our program we'll wipe 600 you know so we try to look at those incentives uh, to bring them in as well and then we have a decreased probation cost so to be in our court $30 a week you know versus uh, I think when I was looking at it they spend about $3,600 a year in our treatment court versus if they're just on average probation, it's about 8,700 a year. Um, and it's definitely cheaper. It's definitely more manageable for our clients to realize that it's a cost saving thing as well. We also work really, really hard for their driver's license. Uh, DUI courts, um, there's a, like, there's a mandatory waiting restriction to get your license. Like it's suspended for 90 days you can't even get a probationary license. Uh, the state has worked with us that if you're in DUI court, we can bypass that mandatory waiting period. So we can look at getting your license right away to help you get to all the places you have to get to, which is a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. So that's maybe a good time. You, you, you start bringing up all the places that you got to get to. Can you speak to like the resources and the community partners uh, and what that looks like for for a, a tract like that? Yeah. Uh, so part of the treatment court, and I don't think I explained this very well in the beginning, uh, is this um, this amazing component that it's a team. So if you're just you don't go through treatment court and you're on a traditional track, you have your probation officer, and then maybe you are going to Rimrock and you're you're doing IOP. And then maybe you're involved with the CPS and you have your caseworker and it's all these different components and they're, they don't know each other. They're not speaking, you know, there's confidentiality, there's HIPAA, 
So the great part of our team is that we all come together and we're we're all one group. Uh, so we've partnered with Community Solutions, who does all of our probation, all of our testing. Um, and then we've partnered with Remrock. They specifically have a building just for treatment court, Silverleaf, if you want to talk about that a little bit. Yes. So all of the outpatient clients, so outpatient means that they are not in a residential care, so they're not 24 hours needing treatment um, or a component of that. And outpatient treatment involves day treatment, where it's 20 hours a week, IOP, where it's nine plus hours a week, and aftercare relapse prevention care, or level one, where it's under nine hours a week. So everyone throughout that time, from the beginning to the end, can be in one building. So it's one resource where all levels of care happen and all of our treatment court clients are there. So no matter what treatment court they're in in the in the Billings community, they can come right to Rimrock for in Silverleaf just for treatment services. Yeah, and a lot of the, the treatment courts, you know, there's a specific caseworker from CPS that's on their team as well. Um, so the treatment courts try to make sure any sort of agency that's involved is going to be on that team. Um, so we just want to make sure that we're hitting all the boxes, that if someone notices something, you know, I can call Carr and I say, hey, you know, he's not looking good this week. Can a counselor follow up on him? And it's that immediate response that we can do. Same with probation. You know, we can call Adam, our probation officer, and say, look, we're a little concerned about what's going on at home. Can you do a home check and just make sure everything's okay? And it's that great team resource um, that we get to use. Uh, PACT just, uh, Rimrock just started a PACT team and they've joined our team as well to help maybe with a little bit more of that severe mental illness that we're seeing. Um, and that's been a great resource that we've just added as well. Yes. And so they help with um, clients who may not have or may have extreme substance use disorder, but they're uh, co-occurring issues, so their mental health concerns are severe enough that they need increased care. So that includes three services at least per week. So LAC, licensed addiction counselor, mental health provider, peer support, um, any resource that we have that can, and a case manager also, that and medication can be assisted with that. So they need increased supervision with their with going through their mental health care. So we have a whole team, 18 people that work on that through Room Rock. And you were mentioning before uh, we started the podcast about some of the intense uh, monitoring, you know, drug screening, uh, your analysis tests like multiple times a week. Uh, can you kind of talk to about some of the, um, some of those safeguards that you have in place to continue to monitor? Um, that way people don't somehow think that it's just it's it's an alternative to something else and it's actually seems like there's a lot more work and a lot more effort and a lot more monitoring that goes into a treatment program than the regular tract of probation yes so when a client comes in throughout their time in a treatment court best practices uh, indicates that four times a week a client will need a random urinalysis or breathalyzer so in those aspects so a normal day say uh a client wakes up, they get up early, uh, they want to prepare for the day, so they call maybe at 5 a.m. and they hear their number being called. Um, so they have to make sure that they make it down to provide a UA. If they don't, they're non-compliant. 
that's a positive test in the eyes of the treatment courts and their time restarts sobriety time within the court restarts and they have to speak to the judge about it the next time they're in court they have to talk to their counselor about what happened and what barriers they had they have to follow up with their coordinator on what they need in place so if they need a bus pass in order to get down there if they need to have six different people that they call within the day in order to make sure they make it there um when a client provides a ua um, adam has a fantastic um, turnaround time so within a few hours we know if a client is positive we can address that in treatment we can have within the day we can reach out if a client is not being seen that day we can reach out as a treatment provider and say what's going on can you come in and see me i'm worried about you you had a positive ua um, and that intervention can happen immediately with um, the analysis that they're on and drug screens. Can you speak to, uh, as you're talking, uh, you know, I, I've had conversations with people before who, well, they violated the conditions of this by having, a, you know, a, a hot test uh, they're using again. Um, shouldn't they just go directly to jail and, and be done and over with it? Can you speak to some of maybe some of the expectations of during recovery that there might be lapses and that you have those layers there to help keep them on track? And it's just one violation alone isn't just the end all be all. Yes. Yeah, so addiction is, <laughs> is a disease, right? So Things can happen within their world that they have relied on alcohol for, a death. Something doesn't go their way. They haven't seen their kid in a couple days. Um, they don't have the coping skills in place in order to intervene on that prior to needing a substance. Um, a substance abuse problem just doesn't just go away. Someone just can't say, I'm done today, and it'll be done. Um, it has become a part of their life. It has become a part of their coping skills. So. A client who actually relapses actually helps them in instances when that occurs. If they've been doing super well for a super long period of time and then they falter, they lapse, they relapse, they come back, right? We can identify what happened prior to that relapse and what we need to change in that. So they've been successful within their sobriety and we need to build upon that. It doesn't just all crumble down with one relapse. Um, that's why the team intervention is outstanding because um, we can intervene, we can set aside different times, we can increase levels of care if needed. Um, we use a ASAM criteria where weekly evaluations happen with our clients in order to see, do you still meet the criteria? How do you meet the criteria? And are there things that you need more of? Is there a mental health aspect? Is there a grief counselor that you need? So. That's a positive aspect of being able to have that intervention happen right in the moment or within a couple days. So then they're not waiting for the next round of relapses to happen if they're not engaged in a treatment court. Yeah, and it, it doesn't solve the problem. You know, if we're just gonna revoke them for use, that doesn't do anything, you know? They're not learning, they're not gaining those coping skills that Carr was talking about. Uh, and that's just more work for the people in the community too. You know, the probation officer has all these reports that they have to comply, like compile and submit. And it's it's not solving the problem, you know. So, like, if we wanted to just say, oh, you used, send them back to jail, we're going to keep seeing the cycle over and over again. I mean, that's why treatment courts were started. I think, like, back in, you know, 1989, 
judges were just sick of seeing the same people over and over and over again and it can be hard it can be a lot on the people that are involved in the justice system and i think by being able to look at a relapse and look at why it happened it's it's just better it's better for the person it's better for the community and it is it's it's kind of starting to look at substance use as a disease and letting people know that sometimes it just can't be stopped so I've heard you to talk about the benefits to the community, safety, productivity, um, to the individuals and what they're dealing with in their own lives. And then now we just kind of touched a little bit on uh, the big benefit of trying to deal with the problem. Um, and I think this teases us up perfectly for you to talk about some of the recidivism rates, because when I heard about how successful these programs are versus the traditional court tract, um, in those circumstances was what really kind of drove it home for me that these programs are very useful. They're, they're extremely useful. And I mean, I guess I can talk a little bit on what maybe the, like the national average is for recidivism. I mean, just treatment courts in general for looking at a national average, uh, we're looking about like a 31.8% recidivism rate. And recidivism is when a client goes out and commits a new crime. Uh, and that's after the completion of our of our treatment court. Um, so what we're looking at is, uh, I mean, 62% of the people that complete our treatment court will not go out and create a new offense. And it gets even better the more that we look maybe a little bit more specifically at each of our courts. So our DUI court, if they make it through, only 11% of them will go out and get a new DUI charge. That's huge. That's amazing. And then I think the the big thing, um, especially with a lot of the conversations when we were talking about the safety mill levy and was the mental health part of it. And those clients that complete our, our treatment court in the co-occurring court, 12% of them will go out and pick up a new charge. And we are really picky at what we look at for recidivism. I mean, we look at anything that is technically considered criminal thinking. If they get a driving while suspended, that counts. We count if they didn't if they got a ticket for not having insurance. We get a, we count it if they text while drive, and get one of those tickets because that's endangering the public safety. Um, so twelve percent of those people with mental health disorders and substance use disorders will commit a new crime, but that's a huge number that isn't, um, and that definitely helps the you know the community. You know. Do you have um, a comparison to what the recidivism rate is without treatment court and comparable populations? 86%. So 86% will reoffend. Yes. If they decide to not go through our court, 86% of them will go out and pick up a new charge. What are, um, what's the future of the programs? I mean, we just are always continuing to expand and look at new options. Um, funding options are obviously always on the top of our mind. Grants don't last forever. Um, but we look at just continuing to be able to bring people into the treatment court and talk as much as we can, figure out new interventions that that we can use. Um, I think Silverleaf just put in... Uh, the, the trust program, which focuses more on people 
with opioid addictions, right? Uh, stimulant use disorders. Stimulant. Thank yes. you. So the TRUST program is a protocol using empirically supported behavioral treatment for people with psychoactive stimulant use disorders. So that can include cocaine, methamphetamine, amphetamine. Um, these approaches include contingency management, cognitive behavioral therapy, community reinforcement approach, motivational interviewing, and physical exercise. Um, a lot of our stimulant use disorder people, um, they struggle with physical exercise after being on a substance in which that high is provided. Um, losing weight is probably one of the big things. So the physical exercise, having that natural endorphin happen is a positive thing for our stimulant use disorders. Um, community reinforcement is also a big one too, where they're in the community. They're doing the self-helps. Um, motivational interviewing is one that we normally use and Contingency management is an approach of you provide a negative UA, you get an incentive. Um, that's not something that we put on a big bulletin board, be in this program because of this. Um, but this is just something to assist clients who are showing that they're making appropriate progress. So it's a 12-week, 12-session course. Um, each week they have to do one session specifically for trust, an individual session, and provide UAs in that program. So I'm going to put the both of you on the spot just a little bit right now, and I want, I want to talk about some of the challenges that each of you are facing uh, respectively for your programs to kind of shine some light on those and see if there's maybe some community resources or some things that can kind of kickstart and get some traction for some solutions. Housing. Okay, let's talk about housing. What's, how's that How's that interplay in this whole thing? Uh, I mean, it's, it's really hard. Uh, I, looking at the the case management side of things frequently seeing that rent has increased um assistance for rent was great during covid but that was for people affected by covid money to help with it comes once they get that 30-day eviction notice and i don't want my clients to ever get to that point so it's it's really hard to ask a client where do you where do you want to live what should we be looking at um and rent is a thousand dollars for a two bed, one bath from 2000, you know, like it's, it's, it's been a really big challenge that uh, we're trying to solve and trying to look at. I mean, we look at sober living and those are great options. And sometimes I feel like we don't have enough sober living options either um, because a lot of them are, are really great. We have a couple of people that have gone through a program uh, that are either managers there or they run a house so they get the program, they get understanding what it's like to be in recovery. Um, but that's a huge issue that like we continue to face. Same with transportation. Um, I wish our bus system was a little better. I think we talked about this the other week. Actually, um, one of the biggest ones that we've seen is a lot of clients who affordably can live in Lockwood and they do not have a driver's license. They try to utilize family members or someone of support they cannot ride the bus in. There is no safe path for someone to get in from Lockwood to Billings, Montana. Um, there's no there's no bus system out there. So that is probably one of the biggest barriers when someone potentially is finding housing in an affordable area and they cannot ride the bus into Billings in order to gain the services that they need to have. One of the biggest barriers. Um, I think that we've had recently yeah, a, a huge barrier and i think to be truthfully tr truthfully truthfully honest see that means it's really really honest see what i did there mm -hmm. um is <laughs> dream accord is hard it is really hard to have a client sit in front of you 
and you tell them it's going to be a year, a year and a half. And it's, it's hard. And if we have time, I'll, I'll walk you through a little bit more of what their requirements are. Um, but it is, it's easier to just go to Rimrock and what's IOP at, at Rimrock? 12 weeks? Uh, yeah, five to 12 weeks, um, there in Rimrock. So, um, for an outpatient setting, um, and the investment mm-hmm. of, and I don't think we've gotten to this yet, the treatment costs. So the investment that those grants provide for clients, um, insurance costs are high. Um, there's not affordable um, insurance for some clients who come into our program. They don't qualify for Medicaid because they make too much money. They don't have insurance options at their current employment. And the copay or the insurance that they're trying to gain is not affordable to them. So the investment of the treatment courts into their treatment costs is huge, especially if there's an underlying mental health issue. Um, one of the positive things that Billings Adult Municipal Court offers is all clients have to have a mental health eval. So we get clients into that investment into themselves and maybe there's some underlying depression, anxiety, um, grief is a huge one that clients have as well. Um, we can intervene and have options for them to attend to their mental health issues in addition to their substance abuse. So those are positive aspects. We also have a medication-assisted program through Rimrock, which is medication that assists in their treatment. So they have to be engaged in treatment to be a part of this program, and the medication can assist in um, alcohol cravings, um, opioid cravings. Um, we have a couple different options through our MAT program for that. And the investment that the treatment court offers clients is huge. Um, copay costs can be a part of that, um, or their whole treatment can be paid for. Whereas if they walked into the Rimrock building, they would have to pay out of pocket. What other things do you want listeners to kind of know about these programs that we haven't talked about covered yet? Hmm. That's a, that's a good question. Can I go back to your previous question though? You sure can. Because, sure. um, I do want to put into play that, um, we have a staffing shortage with Rimrock. Um, Silver Relief has been blessed in not having a lot of staffing shortage at this time, but um, the care of clients is the most important. We have a lot of residential houses, which is inpatient treatment, and our we need people. We need um, investment into our clients, and we have a staffing shortage that is is a real area of struggle. With providing care we want to provide the best care and we need the people in order to help with that so that is actually one one struggle that we do have in the community too so let's say we all we all know that um those with substance abuse and mental health timing is huge uh, for when treatment or resources become available or that they have access to them let's say i'm somebody that has a substance abuse disorder some mental health what are my resources and how do I access them and where can I go to get more information about them? Well, if they're not going into our court, I think, you know, the the two biggest agencies in our community would be the Mental Health Center and Rimrock. Um, and I think, you know, those are the, the two big ones and you can speak on those a, a little bit more than I can. I think if someone walks in the door, that's the hardest part someone makes that phone call that's the hardest part so when someone makes that phone call we make sure that we have someone available um 
we have a lot of admissions. Um, we have an admissions program where if someone called in, they automatically go there. We set up a time when we're like, do you want to have an eval right now? Um, do you need detox right now? There's some people who uh, can go right into detox when they're having a crisis. Um, that availability is always what we want to have. We want to have beds available. We want to have someone who I'm in the lowest part of my life. I need help um, and go into detox for the three to four days that they can and then hopefully go right into a residential care where they can go right into treatment. So that's always the goal. The access to it is available. And if someone makes a phone call, we want to have that in place. Sometimes that's not open at that moment, um, but we have peer support specialists. We have our admissions team who reach out on a regular basis in order to make sure, how are you doing today? Do you need help? Um, having that for that first line of support in how do we help you prepare even for that next day um, and to get through the day. Do you need mental health services in the meantime? Can we get you in with someone right now? So that's always the goal. All right. Well, you ladies were definitely the subject matter experts I thought you were. Um, oh, good. <laughs> uh, last last meeting comments before we, we head out here, if there's anything we missed um, or anything last minute you want to say, we want to make sure we get to the, the listeners before we uh, end the show. I think the stigma around addiction is a big thing. Um, one in 10 people in the United States stuff, suffer from substance abuse problems. That's a huge huge portion of I mean if you look at your block one in ten one in ten people that you see in a day one in five have a mental health disorder and the stigma around a mental health disorder or a substance abuse problem people need help they need resources and we need to have them available in our community and not have a stigma around it when someone is gaining help and that's what treatments courts are are here for and we're really working on breaking that that stigma and showing that you know people are not their addiction they're not their mental health and we really really try to make sure that we let people know that Um, a lot of our clients go on to be very successful they start their own sober living they start their own um, business they (laughs) business yeah they give jobs to our community Um, they reinvest into their kids lives coaching um, and someone sharing that they've gone through a struggle, I feel like is one of the most empowering things that someone can say in trusting another human being. The connection that an, an addict has or a substance abuse problem has, connection is the opposite of addiction. So if you have connection with the person and you're not judging them and you're taking them in for who they are, that is one of the most important components that a person can have in their life, connection. Ladies, uh Thank you for your time as well as your contributions uh, to what you do for the community. Uh, I think this was a, a great conversation to have to highlight that, um, you know, the criminal justice system, and the community problems that we're facing are much larger than just the Billings Police Department. So thanks to our listeners for making it all the way uh, to the end. Till next time. Thank you.